Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and I'm so happy to have you with us uh, for our show today. We've got a lot to talk about, both uh, news about the runoff and other political news uh, that I want to go over with the panel. So uh, let me get right uh, to them. On Thursdays, my uh, partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is the editor-in-chief of the paper, Kevin Riley. Kevin, thank you for being with us today. I'm glad to be here, Bill. And is it true? Is the runoff actually, I mean, is this political season actually going to end at some point? I mean, can we look forward to that? I certainly hope so, Kevin. (laughs) Yes, next Tuesday is the final day of voting in the runoff for the United States uh, Senate. Uh, Thanks for being here, Kevin. Kevin, you've got your big HAC holiday party, you said, coming up later today. Yeah, we'll have everyone here on our newsroom staff. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, as these days, as we all know, those of us who work in offices, it's just not typical to have everybody there anymore. So really looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, happy holiday season to you and your uh, team. Uh, we're joined uh, today also by State Senator Sonia Halpern. And I feel really honored that we get you on the show this week, Sonia, because you were just elected in the Democratic uh, uh, leadership positions over on the Senate, vice chair of the caucus, moving up in the world, Sonia. (laughs) Well, I am thrilled to be with you today, and I am. I'm excited to step up and join our very capable and incredible leadership team, and uh, we are ready to serve, and I am excited to be part of that leadership. Well, congratulations uh, on that. Uh, Leo Smith is back with us. Leo's been a longtime uh, Republican consultant. He's also the CEO of Engaged Futures, which is a government uh, relations uh, organization. But, but Leo, we've talked about you uh, frequently lately for your work over at the Carter Center, where you have been um, working on projects to advance our democracy in the face of all of the election lies, and uh, other ways in which people have uh, cast doubts on elections. So we're glad to have you back with us. Well, thank you so much, Bill. And indeed, the threats to democracy and our republic is continually on the minds of Americans. And I appreciate Political Rewind for highlighting those issues. We try to do that with some regularity. Kurt Young, professor of political science and chairman of the political science department, at Clark Atlanta University is uh, with us. Uh, Kurt, you're getting set to go off on your winter break. Last class was yesterday, but you got papers to grade, I guess. Papers to grade and and other items to grade as well. Uh, But you know, this time of year, you kind of expect that. So you kind of buckle down and and get it all taken care of and then really enjoy that week before Christmas and and, and, a week after and get it started all over again in January. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here. All right, let's get right to it. Um, Kevin, there has not been a lot of polling of the uh, runoff election, uh, but there have been three or four polls, and uh, there's a brand new one 
that was conducted by Emerson College uh, for the Hill. Um, I always like to talk about the Emerson College polls for two reasons. One, because they get an A rating from 538. They're considered a very reliable polling firm. And second, because Emerson is my daughter's alma mater, and I always like to give them a little extra uh, promotion here and there. But let's talk about the poll. Um, It shows a race with Warnock at 49%, Walker at 47%. But it's a virtual tie because the margin of error is such that um, it, it looks like this thing is tied. And there's another poll out today which literally has it at 50-50. We're not surprised by that, Kevin. This race has been um, close from the very start. Yeah, it sure hasn't changed. I do have to say, Bill, I, I'm sure the folks in Emerson College appreciate you highlighting their polls, but in the end, they'd probably rather you write a check. So um, now that you, you're out in the open on that, so... <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, we have been covering this race, it seems like, forever, right? And we've been talking about it on this show forever, and it has always been this way. It has always looked 50-50. And so now in this short runoff period with this, you know, major turnout uh, in early voting, it, it, it becomes, it looks like, more like can you get your voters out than ever before because clearly – it's it, it's neck and neck. I do think one of the most interesting things about this poll is that 57% of those polls expect Warnock to be reelected and 43% expect that out of Walker. So I, I get that's not the same as saying how you're going to vote. But to me, that says something about how the mindset has shifted as this thing has moved along. Well, um, uh, Sonia, in fact, uh, to amplify that, uh, the poll found that one in five Republicans who were polled uh, are expecting that Walker's going uh, to lose this race. And and Kevin's right. That doesn't really tell us what the vote eventually will be. But it does say something about the fact that Republicans remain, some Republicans, very skeptical of Herschel Walker. Yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, one of the questions in this race in particular um, really does come down to I'll say quality of candidate, right? And I do think that as this race has gone on, as it has remained neck and neck, there is a lot of tension between, you know, who is in fact the better candidate? Um, what is more important to me as a voter? Uh, is it the issues? Is it the candidate? Is it the party? And so I think when you put all those things in a pot and stir, this is why we're seeing um, so so much closeness. I, I, it's just not clear for people. And I think that people are really being called to task individually inside of themselves to really determine what are the most important factors to them when walking into the poll, the voting booth and um, pressing a button as to who they want to see represent them. Um, Kurt and Leo, uh, yesterday on the show, we talked about the demographics of the early vote in Georgia so far and pointed out that overwhelmingly voters are 50 years of age and up turning out at the poll. Some 70% of those who have so far voted early are over 50 years of age. And, and I said, and, and typically those are voters who tend to vote Dem- a Republican. I got pushback from a couple of listeners who sent me emails saying, what do you think, just because we're over 50, do you think we've suddenly become conservative? Well, no, but... 
the reason I mentioned it today, Kurt, is that here's what the Emerson poll shows. It shows that the age of 50 is the dividing line among those they polled. Um, Among those under 50, Warnock is by far out front. Among those over 50, it is Walker who has a substantial lead. Kurt? And it supports supports a long-held theory uh, in electoral politics that the key to a victory in close elections is turning out the youth vote, the younger vote, right? And the part of that is because there's a tendency uh, in younger uh, uh, demographics to not vote, as, as you mentioned, as loyally as older, uh, uh, above 50 voters. I, I think, though, what you may have received is, uh, and I heard the conversation yesterday morning, I thought it was a wonderful discussion, but I think what you may have received there by way of some pushback, Bill, is that the key to this election for, from the Warnock camp, as I understand it, of course, across the board, it's not just Warnock, it's, it's going to be turnout, right? I think we've really made that point clearly, and I think uh, uh, Senator Harper just made the point as well. Uh, but to the extent that turnout is the key, it has a specific type of uh, a youthful demographic for the Warnock camp, given the fact that we know that this uh, particular segment of the uh, of the um, um, population has a history of not turning out at the same rate. But at the same time, Bill, that, that's the promise, right? Uh, that is the opportunity that's at hand here. And I think this is what we hear uh, when we when we take note of the effort to replicate the Obama uh, um, strategy, the Obama coalition, which was loaded with these this exact demographic. Right? So I think that although that's the pattern, we're seeing that it's going to also be the secret to the future. Uh, I want to get you in, Leo, but before I do, real quickly, Kurt, I mean, you're mm-hmm. on a college campus. So tell us what you're seeing among your students. Are they energized for this runoff election? Mm-hmm. And in, for that matter, were they really energized for the general election uh, three and a half weeks ago? Bill, I have to be really honest. It's a really interesting but complex conversation. So you heard me here on this show and in other places uh, make the point that our young people were very energized uh, going up into the election. But we had a really, uh, you, you hear the term forensic, we had a really forensic discussion with our, our uh, undergrads. And it re- revealed some, some challenges that we have been uh, aware of for many uh, generations that uh, some of our young people, uh, although the energy seemed to be uh, uh, very intense and we know that we had a strong, strong uh, turnout to vote and voter registration campaign uh, in the AUC. So this is this comment that I'm making is not uh, defying what we know occurred. The, the, the work that was done on the campus was very, very encouraging. But, Bill, I have to be honest and to share with you that we had some, some horror stories in, that reflect some of the apathy uh, among younger generations. I'm uncomfortable saying that, but it's just a reality, you know. So I can get into those details another time if you'd like for me to. Oh, Leo, jump in. No, I think uh, Professor Young's uh, concerns about the youth have been sort of perennial concerns, although I think that actually the youth are showing up. I mean, and if we look at the general election, they they did better in this election uh, than they had since Obama, in fact, and they outperformed the young voters, uh, what most people expected, which is one of the ways that the Democrats uh, really showed up in this past general. And so that bodes to be a problem for Walker as we look at the gaps that exist. I mean, you know, in spite of this concern about the 50-plus-year-old turnout, which I don't think 50-year-olds today are the same as 50-year-olds yesterday, all those 50-year-olds at the at the Cobb uh, 
Center listening to Dave Matthews, um, all those 50-plus-year-olds there were voting for most of them, some of them Republican, but most were voting for Warnock. And uh, so 50-year-olds yesterday and today are not the same. The 20-point early vote gap that, that the Emerson poll suggests that uh, um, Warnock has, uh, a lot of that, I think, is being animated by youth vote. And, and some of them were here for early voting last week uh, uh, because they were here on break. And that's the advantage, Warnock. And then, you know, Walker has an eight-point advantage for a uh, 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 day of voting. We saw that in the general. He had a big advantage a day of. But with the lack of motivation that Republicans have across the board, I'm not so sure that he can make it up. So uh, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, Leo, because that's the next uh, aspect of this poll I'd really like to address. Senator Halpern, um, this poll uh, confirms something that we have long seen as a pattern in uh, uh, elections uh, with with uh, early voting periods. Um, Emerson found that among the people they surveyed, uh, 63% voted early for Warnock, only 34% for Walker. Uh, But as Leo just pointed out, when it came to uh, voting probably on Tuesday, the actual election day, that was a uh, 52-44 favorable uh, number for Walker. But, But that's not enough for Warnock to get over, I mean, for Walker to get over the top. Not that those numbers are what we're going to see next Tuesday necessarily, but it does remind us day of voters are very crucial to Republicans. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think that we get excited about early voting numbers, and we should, because we want to see people uh, participating in their democracy and and casting their vote and therefore um, having a voice in what happens. Uh, but early vote alone is not the full story. And we cannot forget that uh, certain voters really do like to go day of, and they will wait to go day of, and that is a strategic decision that they themselves make. And so we're excited about the numbers, and we're breaking records in terms of early vote and runoffs. I mean, I think uh, yesterday, maybe not uh, what day are we, Thursday, Monday and Tuesday, for sure. We broke records statewide for early vote in a runoff. This is all really encouraging, but it's not uh, definitive as to who will win the race, because as we continue to see, the polling is showing that it's still neck and neck. You know, Kevin? Bill, the, the other thing about this, so um, in the jolt this morning, Patricia Murphy uh, shares that, 1.1 million people have voted, right? And that's, as she points out, leaving roughly 2.9 million voters who showed up for the general election last month but haven't yet voted. So, you know, that's the key. And we have such a short period. We don't, you know, we have a lot of analysis historically of runoffs in Georgia. We've got all, but as the senator points out, I mean, this, this one's completely and totally different. I voted, uh, I was part of that record turnout Tuesday really excited about that. I I apparently was among the largest group of early voters in Georgia history. um, And I'm going to impress my friends with that. Um, But I waited, I timed it. I I hit a timer when I got in line, an hour and six minutes, I waited. And um, I am over 50, despite, you know, uh, as youthful as I may look to some. And I had time to wait, you know, but I think younger people, may not have 
that time to wait, especially on Election Day. So maybe that margin for Herschel Walker becomes even greater on Election Day, because if you're over 50 or you know, you're retired or you, I mean, you can wait for hours in line, but if you're a young person who thought, well, I'm going to run to the polls. I mean, I I just don't, I just think that any prediction that we would try to make on how this is going for either candidate is, is really hard to do. And I think the campaigns Uh, believe that. And that's why they're hammering away at turnout. Leo. No, I think that we have to be very clear. I think Gabriel Sterling and Brad Raffensperger uh, are, are detecting a pattern. I heard them talking about it from our Secretary of State's office, that early voting patterns are not like something that we can sort of say are one-offs, that the American electorate is starting to change its behaviors. That's one of the post-COVID repercussions that we have, is that people have found out by being encouraged to do it because of safety that is actually more efficient to do early voting. And I think that what we're seeing is, is that we're gonna to continue to see early voting numbers that far exceed the percentage of votes than we normally see on day of. And that's not good for Walker. So um, one last thing about early voting before we move on, and Kurt, I'll turn to you on this uh, because you're on a campus. Um, the, there are many people who believe and we talked about this uh, on the show earlier this week, at least one panel mentioned this, adding that Saturday voting day last week, which was in dispute, which Republicans tried to stop, may have in fact given young people, college students who were set to head home for the holiday, an opportunity to vote. Now, whether they did or not, we don't know but it was a day that at least they might have been able to get to the polls before heading off to wherever they live. It's really interesting that you raised that point. As I was making mention of, of, of some of what we came, what came out of, out of our conversation with our younger people the other day, that was one of them, Bill. They uh, raised the question, uh, not only as it related to this particular election uh, and, and runoff, but also election in, in America in general, which goes back to the question, why is it that the society does not make voting more convenient for the populace, for the electorate, right? And so our young people were asking that question. Of course, it gets to the tradition of voter suppression, uh, not just as it relates to uh, this particular moment, but a long history of, of, of pushing back against, uh, uh, recall the intensity around the conversation about um, uh, registering to vote once you earn your, your, your driver's license and these other types of uh, strategies and so uh, that was exactly one of the points, right? And um, uh, and Leo's point was so critical. Leo, they made some of the same arguments. Uh, COVID changed things, and these young people came to age as voters in the age of uh, of COVID, and so they're looking for the same type of direct connection to voting as they have access to office hours uh, using Zoom, right? <laughs> right? Or, or being able to have classes online uh, and those kind, of, those kind of, of conveniences. And so that ability to get into the vote that, that, uh, uh, on a Saturday, Bill, is an important uh, dynamic in the minds of these young voters. But, Kurt, isn't it fair to say that we've, we have more enthusiasm about voting now than we, we had 15, 20 years ago? I mean, do you, do you do you believe that? Do you see that? I know you, you expressed some concerns earlier, but to me, I mean, we've had greater turnout. We've had more people voting. And I'm not making any argument for or against the voting law in Georgia. That, set that aside for a moment. But the intense interest 
And what we have going on in Georgia has just led to more people caring about voting, has it not? So it depends, right, Kevin? And that's a great point, man, but it depends, right? Think about 2008, which seems like a, a, you know, a, a generation <laughs> ago, many, many years ago, right? I mean, the, the, the black community was mobilized in ways that we had never seen before, right? Uh, and then uh, rewind even further beyond that uh, uh, and think about the excitement, you know, regardless of whether or not it produced an electoral victory, but the excitement around the Jesse Jackson campaign, right? And so we have a recurrence of these moments of excitement that we are begging for young people to turn out and vote at the same level of the excitement. And uh, sometimes we, 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 we leave with, with, you know, scratching our heads as to what actually turned out. So um, I got to get to a break. But as long as we're talking about young voters, I want to make an admission to all of you here. Uh, I think you all know I'm in my 70s. I as a young person, didn't vote either. Uh, I'm thinking about the fact that as involved as I was in anti-war protests in the late 60s and early 70s, I did not go to the polls and cast a ballot in 1972 uh, for, uh, 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 in 68 for Hubert Humphrey. I did not go to the polls in 72 and cast a ballot for George McGovern. I frankly don't remember if I even voted in the 1976 election uh, when, of course, Jimmy Carter became president. So I'm afraid to say I am guilty of what so many young people, despite my interest in politics, it just didn't get me to the polls. And and I think that there's I, I feel I share that, uh, Kevin, with a lot of young people out there. Well, Bill, while we're confessing, um, my freshman year of college was 1980. And I realized too late that I was not going to be able to vote in that election because I hadn't applied for an absentee. I mean, I didn't understand the system and I was, you know, there was no way for me to vote. And I remain, I mean, I, this is the first time I've gone public about that. I mean, uh, so I understand completely what you mean. But I do think uh, Dr. Young's right. I mean, there's this gap between enthusiasm and action. Um, that I think young people naturally, uh, you know, if we're honest, you know, we, we've all been there and, and just wonder if that's happening here. But I, I do think there's certainly the enthusiasm and um, there's certainly much better awareness of how to access voting. But whether that turns into something, we just don't know. Got to get to a break. I'm not going to go around and ask you all to um, uh, tell me when you first started voting. I will say I voted in every election now and don't miss one for anything. We got a lot more to talk about and we'll do that after a break. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Leo Smith, Kurt Young, Senator Sonia Halpern, and Kevin Riley join me for today's show. Uh, Sonia Halpern, uh, what do you expect the impact uh, former President Obama can have on turning out Democrats when he arrives to campaign for uh, 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 Raphael Warnock uh, later today? 
Uh, I think that President Obama continues to generate enthusiasm amongst Democrats. And so the fact that he is making the time and the effort to make this race a priority, I think, says a lot for Democrats. And it gins up excitement. Um, of course, everybody won't be able to be there to see him. Uh, and it is going to be likely older folks who are able to do that uh, because we'll have the time. But I think when people know he's coming, it it works for us. And when he came uh, before the general election, it also really spurred and sparked some additional enthusiasm. I think if nothing else, it shows the importance of the race and that it's a priority and that it gives us all a signal that we do need to be paying attention. If for whatever reason we've, we've been able to ignore what's happening around us and ignore every commercial and every social media ad. If you haven't been paying attention, President Obama coming here says, look up and get your butt to the polls. So, <laughs> Senator, <laughs> Senator Halpern, you seem to be making the case that somehow former President Obama is a stronger move by uh, the Warnock campaign than Mike Pompeo by Walker's campaign. Are you saying that people are not as excited for a chance to visit with Mike Pompeo? Are you really going to make that point on this show? I, I think that the folks who like Mike Pompeo would not agree with that statement. But I, I do think that for us as Democrats, yeah, President Obama is, is it. I mean, you know, when you think about his races and hope and change, I mean, that, that is the emotion that he continues to inspire in us. And, and, and we need that in order to help people really understand what is at stake. Because it's, it's easy to forget that we're not just voting for people, that we really are voting for the impact of the policies that will be made with them sitting in the seat. Well, you know, it is certainly true that the Walker campaign cannot call on the former president to come and campaign for him here. They don't want Donald Trump anywhere near Georgia right now. Uh, in the same way, we should say that the Warnock campaign didn't try to get President Biden down here to campaign on his behalf. Uh, that, that is true. You have to choose uh, the celebrity that you want to uh, run block for you. And uh, indeed, uh, Walker uh, does not have people to run block for him uh, more effective than, you know, our own incumbent governor. Uh, governor Kemp is really the best effective person for Walker. But, you know, on, on Obama, I have to say, as conservatives, we didn't vote for Obama. I admit that. I just admitted that. Um, that, you know, it's amazing to me his post-presidency and how who he is as a person, his character, his affability. I mean, he is just a likable person, really incredible orator, incredibly brilliant man. And he entertains when he rallies in a civil way, <laughs> like somebody who entertains in a non-civil way. I mean, Obama's just an amazing asset to democracy. He really is. Um, Kurt, uh, Natalie Mendenhall would want me to point out that Michelle Obama, although she is not coming into the state, has uh, recorded two robocalls, which will go out, both of which are, are calls encouraging people to vote. And um, you know, I'm not, I've never understood, I'm no political consultant, I don't know the impact of robocalls, but certainly Michelle Obama, one of the most admired people in the United States, uh, doesn't hurt to have her uh, telling people to go vote. Kurt? <laughs> Kurt, we've lost your sound. I think you're on mute. I'm sorry, I'm sorry Bill. 
I, I think Natalie and I are like-minded. As I, as I was listening to uh, Leo's uh, points, I, I was thinking, Leo, that, wow, he's right about uh, Barack Obama, but multiply that times 100 for Michelle Obama. Uh, I, I think I, I, don't, I don't speak for the black community, Bill, but I believe that there's a belief, there's a belief in the black community that Michelle Obama is a superstar in the family. And I think there's a what we are seeing, though, with Michelle Obama, I believe, and I, I don't have any evidence for this, that Michelle Obama may be uh, looking to withdraw, pull back a little bit from the national spotlight. But uh, I think her weight uh, in the Obama family uh, rivals that, if not transcends that uh, of, of the husband in the family. I think Kurt makes a great point because, uh, I mean, I would be thrilled to have a voicemail uh, that I could uh, show off to my friends from Michelle Obama. I mean, I'll just be honest. You know, I get a Christmas card from President Carter each year. You know, it's one of those, uh, I'm sure it's an automated signature, but I still take it and show it to my mother-in-law, who's endlessly impressed oh. by that. <laughs> uh, I was struck, Kevin, while the ball's in your court, uh, I was struck by Jeff Duncan's comments. Here's the lieutenant governor, the Republican lieutenant governor of the state of Georgia, um, we know he's an anti-Trumper and has been for quite some time. Uh, he On CNN, he described waiting in line to cast an early ballot, walking in, looking at the machine, looking at the choice between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker, and saying to himself, I can't vote for either of these people, and walking out without casting a ballot at all. Uh, that's quite a remarkable thing for the Republican lieutenant governor to say, Kevin. It, it sure is. I mean, Jeff, Jeff Duncan has, uh, you know, gone stronger and with more certitude into this position that he has taken about, you know, wanting the Republican Party to change. And in fact, I mean, the quote from him is, it was the most disappointing ballot I have ever stared at in my entire life since I started voting. I mean, it would be hard to say anything more strongly about how you're feeling it, but he has been consistent. This is the position he's taking out, and it could be very significant depending on where history takes us. Leo? No, I think that a lot of Republicans are, again, challenged by the choices that we have. Um, and, again, it's, it's a matter of if Walker can and follow the block. I mean, a lot of people are concerned about why we haven't seen a lot of Walker post Thanksgiving uh, after, you know, the Thanksgiving, he's just almost been invisible. And that is because we need to raise the profile of people like Kemp who are now coming out and, and saying, okay, we need to get behind Walker. In other words, again, Walker needs to follow his blockers and he just isn't a good choice for people. So we need to put other choices in front of him. But, 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 but you know, really no one should be really surprised. I have to say about how Walker, and I'm going to lean primarily towards the perception of a poor ballot because of how a Republican sees the Republican candidate, right? We should assume that perhaps Republican voter may be predetermined to vote for the Republican candidate, although I heard Leo uh, suggest that that's not necessarily the case, and I agree with him. Um, however, if indeed one goes to a booth, looking for a viable Republican candidate, one should not be surprised by what one sees and what is unraveling in the, in the um, um, Walker campaign. Uh, we knew that 
because of the nature of his ascent through the primaries, we did not get a chance to uh, uh, for him to deal with the op, uh, uh, opposition types of uh, 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 challenges that he would have received in the campaign. And, and I'm thinking about uh, some of what uh, was recently uh, reported about um, 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 uh, black uh, in the primaries. Uh, so, so the frustration with the nature of the uh, ticket right now is a direct outgrowth of the path by which Walker ascended to the leadership of, of the um, 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 Republican Party's uh, um, senatorial uh, candidates. Uh, I, I see it as a direct link. All right. Um, let's do this. Let's move on, if we can, from the uh, uh, Senate runoff and talk about some other really interesting stories, I think, that have popped up in politics uh, here in Georgia. Um Senator Halpern, let me start with you. I I think it's really fascinating to look at what the Georgia legislature is going, what it's going to look like when you all convene in January. This is going to be the most diverse legislature in the history of the state of Georgia. And while it will still be dominated, of course, by Republicans in both the Senate and the House, the diversity is really remarkable. Talk about that a little. It really is. I think that when you think about the 2020 census in general, you see the demographic trends and the changes that are happening in the state of Georgia. Um, This is uh, this last census. I believe that all of the growth in the state came from non-whites. So it all came from people of color. And so what's exciting, I think, is to understand and start to see that the electorate is, in fact, aching for and ultimately trying to become more reflective of the people of our state. So we will return to the legislature uh, with, uh, uh, let's see, in the Senate, we just elected uh, the first Muslim woman she is a Bangladeshi that this makes two Bangladesh Americans that will be in the Senate. Uh, we have elected the first Palestinian woman. Um, there have been announcements in recent weeks that now there will be launched a Hispanic caucus that's bicameral, bipartisan. There has been launched now an AAPI caucus, again, um, bicameral. The Legislative Black Caucus in Georgia always, well, has um, nearly 70 black members. It is the largest legislative black caucus in the country. And so it's exciting to see uh, that the folks that are sitting at the table and are empowered with votes on major key issues that we'll be dealing with over the next two years are going to better reflect the people that we're actually serving. If we are a representative government, that is that is the ideal and the goal. We'll have more work to do, but we're starting to see that shift and that change, and the demographic trends are going to continue to allow that kind of movement to happen. So, uh, Sonia, let me just say, it as you move forward and in the decade to come, obviously the diversity of the state is going to have an enormous impact on elections and certainly on elections to the legislature. It, and give, But given the diversity of the both Senate and the House this year, it is still a conservative body, both of them controlled by Republicans, and especially on your side, 
the Senate has been really the more conservative of the two yes. bodies. There's more extreme legislation that comes out of there uh, than out of the House. The House often has to tamp it down a little bit. You don't really know what to expect, though, with Burt Jones stepping in as lieutenant governor. He was an election denier on one hand. He was a part of that fake elector slate. On the other hand, he's shown in a couple of areas that he can be a little bit more progressive. I think he was all in favor of um, same-sex marriage, for example. So you don't really know what to make of the fact you've got diversity, but you're still not in control. (laughs) No, and that's true. But the thing is that uh, there's a saying like you're either at the table or you're being eaten at the table. You know, Uh, we have a job. So even though we're not in control, we are. So for Dems, we're in the minority party. But there is a role for us in the minority party. And the truth of the matter is the more diverse that we become. And we haven't I should have mentioned women as well. The more women that we start to add to the legislature, it just means that the way that we discuss the issues and the debates that we have around the issues, they will start to change because you've got more perspective that at least is being brought to the issue and therefore more visibility and more people to be more vocal about what the work is that we're doing and where we need to go as it relates to representing our constituents. You know, I, I raise this as a way of raising the bar, and I'm so happy to have the senator with us today to, to suggest that, you know, the opportunities that we have with these dem- demographic caucuses is that they are less partisan, the ones that we've just, the API is less partisan, the Hispanic caucus is less partisan, and I would beg that women are less partisan, say, than African Americans. As someone who's been involved in Republican politics in Georgia, it's long been a struggle of mine, actually, to engage with our black caucus, and I'll admit that openly, because they were hyper-partisan. And I think the Hispanic caucus, we know how Hispanics vote, though they're small. We're going to see that their representational leadership is actually going to make a really big difference in the kinds of conversations that happen at that table that the senator mentions. And I'm really looking forward to that, that we should get out of our bubbles and we should open our minds to a competition of ideas. And I think that's what this brings. So, so, Kurt? so yeah, I think that there's something here. I, I think that the, to the extent to which the black uh, vote and particularly the, the, uh, uh, the caucus tends to be sort of hyper-partisan is a product of history and the historical development of the politics of the country and the politics of the state. I don't think that the caucus or black people in general tend to be uh, partisan just, you know, for sake of being partisan, although I think Leo is, is correct about what he describes. But if I'm correct, Bill, that that's what we, what we see, it raises a question about the distinction between diversity in representation versus diversity in the politics of the country and the politics of the state. We have to keep our eyes on the diversity as it trickles down into changes in the political philosophy, the governing political ideologies, uh, uh, the dominant political perspectives, the way that power is organized around those ideas. When we see diversity truly occur in the state is when we see shifts away from the status quo into those uh, directions that we assume are reflected in the diversity of the faces that are now assuming power in the state. Because if we look at the black experience, I think Leo was on to something. The black experience, uh, it reflected a sort of tendency, a maintenance of a particular type of political uh, trajectory in the country and in the state of Georgia 
despite the fact that we had uh, uh, new black faces um, uh, come into the political realm. So uh, while I also uh, am excited to see where we are right now, I want to see it manifest itself in diversities in the distribution of power, distributions of the governing and the dominant political ideologies uh, that exist within the society, uh, the fundamental assumptions that we take for granted about um, citizenship, uh, uh, and at the end of the day, the way we have conversations about uh, the threats to democracy in the society around individuals such as Donald Trump and others who are part of the American discussion right now. Kevin, I, I know you want to jump in, but I want to ask you a question um, based on uh, a shared experience you and I have. We both grew up in big northern cities, me in Chicago, you in Cleveland. And we were used to really diverse populations of people around us all the time. And when I came to Georgia in 1983, um, I, I thought, well, I mean, certainly there's a significant black population here, but there was no, Hispanics were a very, very tiny uh, minority. There were few Asian Americans. We certainly didn't have many uh, Muslims that I could uh, at least identify living in our community. And there's something just in a very general way beyond politics, to me, very exciting about the way our certainly metro Atlanta, North Georgia communities are becoming more representative of the world around us. Kevin? Well, what made me so optimistic listening to Senator Halpern as she kind of cited those different statistics was that, look, we're all, we talk about the, on the show all the time about democracy and its future and, you know, our concerns for it. Well, one of the ways that you can guarantee that democracy works is when people have faith in their government. One of the ways they will have faith in their government is when they see people like them in government. Not only does it make people, I, I think people feel like, hey, as Kirk points out, the, the things I care about are being heard and are part of the discussion and part of policy, but it also inspires others when they see people. I mean, I grew up as an Irish Catholic kid in Cleveland, Ohio. I mean, I saw a lot of people like me in politics. It was it was the kind of thing, and I have you know siblings who are involved in politics for that reason, because they could see themselves doing it. And I think the more that people in Georgia see people like them in important spots, the better it will be, the better policies we'll have, and the better progress we'll make as a state. All right. That's a great comment to end this segment of Political Rewind with. We've got more to talk about. We're going to take a break now and be back with more in just a moment. Senator Halpern, your colleague over on the House side of the Capitol, uh, moved very quickly and pre-filed the first bill of the 2023 General Assembly. Representative Darshan Kendrick has the honor of having House Bill 1, and it is a response to the fetal heartbeat uh, law, which Republicans pushed through back in 2019. And what her bill would do... It would require the state to pay for many of the costs of having and caring for a child for mothers who would like to have had an abortion but were prohibited from doing so by the Georgia law that prohibits the procedure after so-called fetal heartbeat activity is detected. Now, I think we know, Sonia, that this bill is not going to get a lot of support from the other side of the aisle, but it's a shot across the bow. And, and it's a suggestion that Democrats are going to find ways to continue to push that fetal heartbeat law 
uh, as a political issue, and, and, a, and they want to find ways to help women in dealing with it. I think that's right. Taking uh, a step back for just a second, you know, the, the Dobbs versus Jackson came down, immediately that law went into place. There were legal challenges, and so then it was decided, no, uh, it's not. It, that's no longer the law in Georgia. Then there's a stay that says no, it is until we finally, you know, kind of work it, work, work it through. So this back forth, back forth, back forth that's already been happening, really does catch a lot of women. And the abortion issue, which Democrats really did lead with as a as a major issue going into the general election, doesn't just go away because the election's over. There are real ramifications to that law, and there are real effects on families, women, and their children uh, having that act, that law be be in place. And so this bill, you're right, is a it's a shot to say, hey. If we're going to make these kinds of laws and make people actually have the children that they get pregnant with, then we also need to make sure that we are providing them with the support that they need to actually raise a child. Because raising a child does not just take time, but it does take actual resources. And if you're somebody who doesn't feel like you've got whatever those resources are in order to adequately raise that child, then the state, since it's going to require you to have it anyway, needs to help support you and make sure that your child gets the things that it's going to need to be able to grow up and be productive. Leo, as a political consultant, you have worked with Republicans uh, largely to help them with their messaging. So here's my question for you. And I've, I've mentioned this on the show before. When, when Roe was overturned, um, certainly people, Republicans like Governor Kemp, celebrated. They said, this is a great day for the country. We are protecting life. Have, though, Republicans done enough to say, we know that this is going to create for some women uh, more difficulties as they raise a children and we want to do everything we can to help support them through this process. It, it feels as if most of the emphasis has been on celebrating uh, 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 abortion being uh, all but outlawed rather than what you do for women to protect them, uh, to help them. And maybe I got that. Maybe they are doing more than I realize. Well, I think certainly, Bill, it does beg the question, doesn't it? And this following of this legislation by Darshan Kendrick is a good, you know, it, it's actually a good litmus about whether or not we have the moral conviction to be concerned about family and how a family goes through its development. Uh, we, we see youth in Atlanta um, experiencing things like gun violence, et cetera, largely because of the lack of parental guidance or things to do that are um, uh, keeping them in the right way. So Republicans have always said to us, and my messaging to my conservatives has always been, if you want smaller government, you have to be bigger people. And this is a challenge to us to be bigger people when it comes to women making decisions about bringing a life into the world. This is resonating amongst conservatives. I think uh, the, another way to look at this is to you know, just pull way back and look at, wow, this could be the beginning of what might be the uh, best strategy Democrats can come up with here. Because if you look at the history of the abortion argument, I mean, the conservative Republican side, you know, even the terminology pro-life versus pro-abortion, all those things that happen. And what um, is happening now is 
okay, everyone, if we care this much about protecting children, what else are we going to do about it? And I do think that that as a strategy for policy going forward is a could be a powerful place to be as opposed to standing with a sign defending abortion rights, which is not as powerful a position in all likelihood that cuts across all different belief systems and against all across all political lines. Because do you care about kids? Then do something about it. That That's a pretty powerful stance for the Democrats to consider taking. Well, that, yeah, Kevin just made me think of something that I, I actually – uh, let me make a connection between this uh, conversation and the previous one, Bill. Um, we were talking just a second ago about what the possibilities are of uh, having a new influx of different types of representatives uh, in the political process uh, uh, that reflects a certain kind of diversity. Well, although it's an African proverb, it's a proverb that's repeated among many uh, societies of color, if I can use that term around the world, which says it takes a village to raise a child. That's not just an African reality, and it is an African reality, but it's something that's repeated in many societies. And if, if indeed we are seeing that we are having an influx of different type of perspectives, I, I, I agree with the point that it's a moral issue and the contradictions that Kevin lay out uh, lay bare the fact that what we what we have the opportunity to see here is indeed the village assisting with mothers who have trouble raising their children, given the financial challenges that exist. And we know we know what these challenges are. We know the story. The question is, do we have the political heart uh, and courage to support a segment of the population who we know the challenges that will be facing them and the child? Um, and so I, I think that what it begs for is a new direction in, in the way we talk about politics of social support, uh, politics of, 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 of um, 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 uh, supporting children and families in, the, in, the, in America. And I, I hope that it's a reflection of where we're headed in terms of, uh, although I, I do believe that we won't see any uh, quick victories on this um, um, particular legislation. All right. We are completely out of time uh, for uh, today's Political Rewind after a wonderful conversation with this group of panelists. So one quick note, because I mentioned it at the headlines of the show. Um, we now know that um, Speaker David Ralston's um, wife, his widow, um, uh, Cherie Ralston, is going to run for his seat up in Blue Ridge. She says she wants to continue the legacy of her husband. She was very active at the state capitol quite often. She's very involved in Blue Ridge politics up there, the head of the development authority up there. Um, it's going to be interesting. She'll have an opponent in this race, um, but we'll uh, talk a little bit more about the special election to fill David Ralston's seat and a little bit more about what his loss is going to mean when uh, the legislature convenes in really just about a month or so from now. We'll do all that and more as Political Rewind continues, but I just have enough time to uh, say thank you to this great uh, uh, panel uh, today. Uh, Kevin Riley, Kurt Young, Leo Smith, Senator Sonia Halpern, thank you all so much uh, for being with us. I will be back with another brand new show tomorrow and hope you'll join us. In the meantime, please take care, stay healthy, and try to get out and vote maybe even before next Tuesday. Remember, though, tomorrow is the final day for early voting. Take care, everybody. <laughs>